you're listening to Safe Space. We're now at the end of this series of conversations. Together with 17 different guests, we discussed the discriminatory nature of the Norwegian architecture milieu, which manifests through an exclusive access to education, as well as the lack of diversity among practitioners in ways of practicing and in the very architectural project and product. As an open end to this cycle of critical dialogue and exchange, Safe Space Collective's members Paul-Antoine Lucas and Bouy-Cuisson meet with three final guests in a sixth episode to talk about a queer practice of architecture as a radically inclusive way of thinking and making in order to move toward a more equitable architecture. We'll have with us Eirik Stokke and Espen Hekertai, graduates from AU, the Oslo School of Architecture and Design and co-founders of the Oslo-based practice Speed Architects, together with Alma Oftedal, who holds a master's degree in architecture as well as in gender studies and comparative literature and who now teaches a course at AU called A Queer Look at Architecture. We'll delve into how to demystify the dogma and challenge the normativity in our profession through the conscious act of queering architecture. Hello. Hi Espen, hi Eirik and Anma. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. Thank you. How are you guys feeling today? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're very excited to to have you at Safe Space. So today, uh, together with uh, Paul Antoine uh, and uh, my name is Son, we'll be conducting this uh, uh, short discussion with you, and we're very happy for it. So we'll just first start with uh, maybe a brief introduction of yourself. So, so if you could tell us about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, I could start. My name is uh, Alma Oftedal, and um, uh, I was invited to this session because I'm giving a course, uh, an elective course at uh, AHO, the Oslo School of uh, Design and Architecture, uh, where we are studying um, queer practices uh, or queer approaches, more uh, correctly said, to architecture. And uh, my background is that I am uh, trained as an architect and I've been running my own architectural office and, and worked as an architect also as employed in different offices for many years. Um, parallel to my work, I have been um, studying uh, gender uh, studies and uh, comparative literature. So I've also had an artistic practice. So my field, so interests, is uh, they are uh, directed towards uh, literature, gender, gender uh, problematics, and artistic practices. And when I say, I have to correct myself a bit, because I said gender practices, but it's more like queer practices, because I think that queer is a broader uh, field than, than just relating it to gender. My name is uh, Eirik Stokke. I am from Stavanger in Norway. Studied uh, architecture and art history, uh, mostly in uh, Oslo, with some stunts uh, abroad. Uh, and I identify as a gay man. And I run a practice together with um, Espen that we consider to be a queer practice. Yes, <clears throat> and I'm uh, Espen Hegertheit, um, together with Eirik, also gay in our little practice. Um, and your practice is called? Uh, our practice is called Section Plan Elevation, Extrusion and Diagram, or Speed, because that's faster. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I'm delighted to be here to talk about this theme that we are kind of um, exploring after this invitation. You're creating some awareness that we uh, that we really need. So thank you. Well, we're very happy to be able to yeah, instigate just uh, re reflections uh, uh, that could be shared and, and mutualized. So uh, we're happy to to have you. Um, so yes, it's maybe before beginning to talk about uh, a queer practice of architecture, we just need to be reminded of what queer means because that's uh, that's a very broad term. So nowadays it is uh, it is a term that is used to identify non-normative uh, sexual or gender identities in, in in politics and also just everyday life. But like going back to the origin of it, uh, it kind of it, it was used in the late 19th century as a pejorative uh, term for strange or eccentric or odd or different people but yeah today we're exploring what queer or queer architecture or a queer practice of architecture means in in in, in the world today so we'll start with you Espen and Eirik you both identify as queer so we're just curious about uh, your experience as queer people in architectural education. Yeah, um, I think that's a super um, relevant uh, question and it's um, especially relevant to use the term queer because um, we have to acknowledge, at least um, me and Espen, that we as uh, Norwegian cisgender males, we also have a lot of privilege and um, my experience in, uh, in architecture school has been for the uh, most part just amazing um, and um, I have never felt uh, harassed or unsafe uh, in my queer uh, identity uh, in school but of course there are some some nuances that can also be be discussed both in architecture um, uh, environments or society as a whole yeah we discussed this um, uh, that we uh we felt really at home and safe, of course, in, in school, but um, it was this uh, question of acceptance and tolerance that we've been debating in our office now. And uh, I, I find it uh, peculiar that uh, until now that Alma is addressing it, we never talked of queer space in, uh, in school uh, for all those years, which I find rather remarkable now uh, in retrospect looking at it but uh, what about now in the professional environment now that you're practicing has it uh, has it changed has anything yeah i think as as queer people or at least as, as gay people and gay cisgender people i think that um there's like nothing uh, physical distinguishing you so you have to make this active decision uh, whether you kind of blend in or whether you stand out, which means that there's a lot of self-consciousness um, that is part of the queer experience, I think. And uh, sometimes you kind of forget about all of this and you just act and you just behave naturally. And sometimes you kind of um, reel in the limp wrist a bit. And in those situations, um, you are made aware of your, of your queerness. And, um, I think that's important to reflect on, on what those uh, situations are. Um, and I think that in, in architecture school, there are certain situations where you also uh, are made more aware of, of your queerness and, uh, and in the professional life 
as well, for sure. In my experience, there has been more in the professional uh, world than in architecture school. Architecture school felt more like this, uh, this bubble uh, <laughs> where you were free to, to explore your interest, but now there's more, um, there's a lot of these um, very um, old-fashioned uh, uh, and um, massive uh, structures that you have to uh, deal with. Uh, and I'm talking about, of course, the architectural profession and other professions in the building industry as well, where um, you're, you can feel quite uncomfortable, not only as, as a gay man, but also as just a young, inexperienced person. So there's uh, this added uh, self-awareness in, for instance, situations in a building site where you're talking to um, experienced um, professionals. Also uh, adding that we are not a trained queer, a trained queer practice, since we never talked of this uh, really until recently. I think that we rediscover space more through a queer approach. Um, I mean, just thinking of how to design bathrooms, public toilets, um, we're trained to make the division, the male-female, uh, but then you have the whole LGBTQIA people. Like, either you divide it properly or you don't divide it. Like, these questions that were never addressed, that, that we're kind of, we have to rediscover them. Uh. And I also think it, it is really remarkable that we haven't uh, been discussing queer space, because if you look at any other uh, creative uh, education or profession, uh, queer is such uh, a used term uh, these days in like the arts. Um, so it's, um, I think it's very good to have people like Alma come in. <laughs> yeah, so. I kind of see the struggles of uh, of queer people nowadays. It's uh, less about like being identified as queer per se, but more n about not conforming to the norms. So when you're not, you don't fit in a stereotype that you're expected uh, to perform, you know, as you're you're just yeah, you're just like instantly be uh, um, you are instantly made of your differences, like aware of your differences. So that's kind of like a, probably a very shared experience, not only for queer people, but we've talked about uh, gender equality and, and all uh, other aspects of it for a long time. So that's kind of like uh, an umbrella uh, that covers a lot of things. But I think I can completely relate to what you were saying, like also about your experience at school, because for me also being a gay, white, and cisgender, um, person like I felt like at school that was also like something that's uh, very much also represented <laughs> within the population of students and that's very much accepted in so many ways and I felt also free to explore and express myself the way I wanted but then I think also maybe yeah what you touched upon like we kind of discovered this <laughs> idea of queer practice uh, or queer architecture notion of queer architecture throughout the last year I think and uh, that's when I was realizing, oh, maybe there's something I was missing at school. Like maybe there was this freedom of expression that I felt, but I was missing maybe also reference points or um, different role models to look up to or different ways of doing things that could be expressed in so many ways that I think for me kind of represents now this opportunity through this idea of queer, queering architecture, queer practice of architecture, I can find that's kind of like a more of an idea of um, 
finding a different gaze and finding a different way of uh, looking at it that's maybe as more like maybe also in some ways more individual but also more aware of other individualities and identities within yeah the way I want to practice so I think I do agree that I didn't feel any sort of form of discrimination in a way but I kind of now in retrospect also find maybe this sort of lack of um, variety of references to look up to. Yeah, it is interesting what uh, you are bringing to the table now because it also have to do, has to do with how do we evaluate whether there have been problems or not <laughs> and what would be the success story and where, how to evaluate what is a problem that is related to queerness and what is a problem that is related to being uh, newly educated and inexperienced, etc., etc. But and in of course these uh, questions have a long tradition in feminism, as you as you said, um, and uh, in in the feminist movement or feminist movements, uh, one tends to evaluate it according to positions of power whether you get to be a boss or not, <laughs> whether you have a leading position in your office. And uh, I wonder if that, if there are any signs on gay people, queer people being discriminated at in the office. Do you know? I think um, I was thinking about this um, and uh, a space like uh, an architecture school, and for, in my experience, I'm talking about Aho, that's the school I know, um, there is uh, this uh, kind of, um, you feel very safe once you conform to some norm. And that norm is not uh, heterosexuality at Aho. The norm is to have a certain aesthetic and a certain um, set of cultural references. And I think um, as long as you conform to that, then you are a kind of, uh, Okay, and then it's uh, then it's a safe space, but as long but if you are a bit um, outside of that norm and outside of those cultural references, then I think it's much more difficult. Oh, that's very interesting. There is an interesting uh, uh, essay in it uh, about it in one of the uh, special issues uh, in the, the architectural magazine's special issues about uh, gender uh, questions. I think it's Architectural Review, the, the issue about feminism from 2019 or from something. They have this <laughs> every every issue. They have uh, somebody ri writing under the headline outrage. And in this issue, uh, the theme is exactly what you are, are addressing here. Uh, how easy it is, or, or how the architectural uh, milieu <laughs> uh, accepts all kinds of gender expressions. But when it, come to, when it comes to how you decorate your home, how you live, the norm is so narrow. <laughs> and that, I think that is something that should be addressed too. Uh, parallel to to all other uh, exclusion mechanism. So I think that is really something that should be addressed at school because I think it poses a problem for many of uh, the students because they they learn that maybe their the home where they grew up it wasn't correct. And is that is that really something we mean? Is that really something we as teachers want them to feel? And and do we really mean it? Why should good taste be better than another taste than the one defined by us and other people trained in 
in working with it. I think, and that doesn't mean that I uh, devaluate our own competence, of course, because we are trained in, as architects and we want to build uh, good surroundings and we have these skills. We know what is quality and what is not. But there is a big step from there to uh, we can we can guide our own quality uh, or we can keep our own quality without devaluating other qualities, other kinds of qualities. Because I mean that our norm is not the only correct. Yeah. Yeah, but I think there are there could be forms of discrimination that I have seen or experienced that uh, are related to heteronormativity in a way, uh, because in architecture, yeah, maybe the act of building uh, is still one of the uh, maybe the most um, obvious manifestations of architecture, and it's kind of like it ensures. Um, the, the normativity of the field and also like the masculinity of the field. So when you propose uh, to not build, to study, to, uh, I don't know, to draw, to, to think, to sp speculate, instead uh, you're, you're often uh, you uh, met with, uh, I don't know, criticism like be bolder or, you know, uh, have some guts or uh, so that uh, I, I think that's uh, that's almost like an everyday uh, struggle. But maybe then to bounce back on maybe this need for having also uh, different things being taught at school, I think um, maybe we could focus a bit on what you're teaching. So you've been now teaching a course about, yeah, as you say, maybe a queer approach to architecture and kind of uh, based on queer and feminist uh, theories in architecture at Ahu for four semesters. Mm -hmm, that's correct. Um, <laughs> and um, why, why do you think that's a topic that you felt like was important also to bring to the curriculum in a way? And what was your motivation behind it also? Actually, it has been a, a work in progress for me because I was invited to, to uh, give a course uh, that was connected to Lisbeth Funk's uh, studio course. Uh, which is oriented towards, a, 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 what should I say, very artistic approach to architecture. And uh, they are doing more like artistic research work, I would say. And their theme was, or their, the course was directed, or, or what they should draw was an animal sanctuary. So then I made an elective course called Animals, and... Um, that brought me directly into the sort of post-structuralist movement, which also includes queer uh, and uh, feminism and post-colonial studies, because there is also a brand called Animal Studies, uh, which is very interesting. Um, so we were reading Donna, Donna Haraway, which is a front figure in that uh, um, academic field and her thoughts about uh, the normative system that uh, makes us think that humans uh, are standing above the animals. And uh, um, I think that is common for all these fields, that it addresses power relations that we take as natural, uh, both between uh, humans and animals, between men and women, between uh, heteronormativity and uh, uh, homosexuality, 
and all other kinds of practices. And it's so embedded in our culture and in our way of thinking that we don't address it. We don't even notice it. <laughs> so I think, and also, of course, uh, this question about uh, north and south, black and white, also all these questions, that is so. We have organized our, the world according to them. So we don't notice that actually they, they, are, they are extremely discriminating uh, systems. So uh, <laughs> I, st I started with the animals and then uh, the students uh, and myself as well. We were really enjoying it. And I, and it, I continued with a more and more feministic approach. But we, in my course, we are discussing all of it at the same time in a way, because uh, I think that for my, for my perspective, queerness is actually about everything that is uh, not part of the hegemonic um, order, in a way. So I'm also planning to give a course in uh, disability studies, which is very interesting and which is very close to my heart, as I have a son with disabilities. So that is a topic that I'm really interested in. And, and it is about the same all the time. Why do we have a view on the world which is built on just some of us? and not everybody is included. And um, I think uh, also that, um, and I can and I see it on my students too, that it's very inspiring to, to study these things. Because, and it's very sort of uh, adequate for a creative practice, because what is a creative practice? It is to question things. It's to question uh, um, relationships. Why are we putting this next to this and not this next to this? this? And that is exactly the same that is done in these uh, fields. So, um, yeah, that was my way into it and also the continuation. Yeah, and we know that you, for your course, you do have a, a methodology and an approach that is very encompassing, as mm -hmm. as you as you just explained. And would you tell us more about yeah, like the specifics of how you actually have built the course mm -hmm. and, and like all the specific uh, subjects that you have uh, gone through with your students? Yeah, so my courses are divided in two parts. Um, <clears throat> there is one theoretical part and then one more artistic. And that is, the reason why I do it in that way is that I actually believe a lot in combining um, these two fields, but I also have experienced that it can be difficult to combine them the same day, <laughs> so to say. <laughs> so <laughs> you stimulate the one part of the brain and then maybe it's difficult to jump directly over to the other one. So that is why I actually do it, divide the whole course. So the first uh, half of it, we study academic texts about uh, concerning the topic. And afterwards, we uh, sort of, or I give the students uh, drawing tasks related to the theme for the course. And these drawing tasks are actually based on uh, fictional literature so, so that is the third part of my course, uh, academic texts, um, drawing exercises, and fictional texts. So this semester we have been reading um, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, 
And I'm continuing with uh, Wolf also next semester. We're going to read Orlando, which really is a very interesting book because uh, it's about this uh, person born in the Renaissance as a man. And then Orlando, he, he sort of turns up in several centuries. And uh, he is sometimes a man and sometimes a woman. So his uh, gender identity is highly ambiguous. Mm -hmm. and, and it was written in 19, I think it was published in 1928. So it's really pioneer in um, bringing this uh, topic to, mm. to discussion. And uh, how have the students been responding to, to this? Uh, have they been engaging in the subject? I think my students have been very uh, motivated. So I feel so lucky that I've been allowed to work with them because they have been so enthusiastic, both in the discussions we have had and also when they have been doing their drawing exercises. And uh, we have... Um, all my teaching is sort of based on cooperation. So I'm not giving a lot of lectures. I'm giving maybe one or two. The rest of the time it's the students themselves that presents the texts we have been reading and everybody have to <laughs> actually <laughs> participate in the discussion about them and, and, and come have sort of uh, reflect on them from their own point of view. And also when we have doing these drawing exercises, everybody has commented on their colleagues' work. And, and I think we have sort of built something very interesting out of it. Um, every se session I feel so, I felt so enriched when we have finished. And, and it's, it looks as though the students have as well, even through, uh, even on Zoom. <laughs> they seem to enjoy it and to, they express that they, they feel that they learn a lot from it. And I think what I learn is uh, to reflect upon uh, both poor relationships but that we take for granted, but also maybe probably they're interested in this as they chose my course from the, the first place, but it's it's so much about ethical uh, approach. How how do we how do we stand in the field of architecture as humans? How what what are our ethical approach to it? I think we're also very curious about what you would maybe like identify associate with kind of um, a sort of queerness to your approach in architecture, because you said that, that you were also kind of triggered by this idea within your practice to kind of also feel a, a will to relate to it in some ways. Do you think about certain aspects of the way that you practice that you would think maybe is that kind of a queer perspective that you, you have, maybe? Yeah, I think it was so interesting to hear Alma talk about uh, her approach and to kind of give us this uh, framework of what is queer space in architecture uh, because we realized that a lot of these topics are topics we have been interested in uh, for a long time and that we have studied um, in our project in school and in our uh, practice now and I think um, just to preface by saying that uh, we have a very small practice and we do mostly uh, private commissions so there is usually not um, a lot of freeness to explore these kind of more academic uh, pursuits, but we do try to kind of um, twist it a little bit. Um, and I think especially it shows up in um, 
uh, questions of, of the norm um, and just being aware that um, the norm we have been taught is, uh, is a product of uh, heteronormative uh, structures. And so to always question um, why we, we tend to, uh, to do things the way we do them. Um, and uh, bearing in mind um, being uh, the inclusive spaces, uh, elements of surprises, uh, expressional uh, uh, creating spaces where you uh, you feel free in a way. Um, yeah, that's been uh, it's been very important. Yeah, and also we've talked a lot about um, this kind of what is the norm in in architecture, especially in in Norway. And we have some some issues with this. Um, what is being considered good architecture now? It's very, it's very much uh, one very narrow approach uh, that has a lot to do with, I think, masculinity. Um, the ones that have um, kind of um, uh, the ones that are considered the great architects of Norway today are mostly older white men uh, who focus on uh, honesty and materials and you know the. Uh, power of the structures and all of these kind of things, which just um, don't really appeal to us that much. We look for uh, for softness and cuteness and uh, <laughs> and queerness. Yeah, but I well just full disclosures so with together with Paul, we also uh, have an architectural practice that uh, identifies itself as a queer practice, uh, and we've been uh, reflecting uh, a lot upon the, the the subject and how that queerness can manifest through the way that we practice and i think uh, there's something that can that can join what you just uh, mentioned is that uh, the uh, maybe the expressivity of uh, spaces and especially outdoor spaces or public spaces and so somehow we feel like the interiors are very much connected and almost like a, a literal translation of who we are because that's where we feel safe to express ourselves but stepping onto the public realm it's a, a very different story so how to like exteriorize that uh, the the spectacle of interiority and like the the yeah, just like this, uh, the the freedom to to of, uh, of expressions uh, of one's expression. It's a it's a, it's a good question. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting that you mentioned interiors and public space. I was reading uh, Aaron Betsky, who has written about uh, queer space, and he has this quote that um, men have been creating um, space and women have been forced to live within the confines of it. And then his um, reason for writing this book about queer space was that he was teaching interior architecture and he noticed that there was a lot of gay men uh, studying it. Um, so that was kind of where it, uh, it came from and he's really exploring this idea of uh, the interior and interior architecture as something that has, that has been seen as inferior and something more feminine and why is that? So it's super relevant. It is. That is, you gave the answer. <laughs> it is because it has been seen as feminine. Yeah, <laughs> uh. yeah I think also like in, um, in talking about like queerness in our practice, we also, I, I mean, maybe I also have really much this idea of like um, the importance of relatability of the building as well. Like, because I think like maybe all the like, example of the heteronormative uh, structure that you have to look up to as this uh, 
white male architect that you read in architecture books and that you're being taught as a reference because they've been <laughs> mostly represented within what we've been taught. It's uh, also often speaking this mystical language of architecture that is not so relatable to, let's say, a greater audience that really is for the educated one, kind of like also this elitist position that I think queerness in architecture is kind of also this will to want to speak to more than yourself. And I think there was something that in a previous conversation you were talking about this idea of the difference of the gaze of the architect projecting what he wants to see in what he does and the gaze of someone that would be projecting the way that he's being seen within what he does in a way like being conscious of sometimes I think I like this idea of when you're more aware of how you're being perceived maybe this is something that you can also bring into what you're doing that you can become more aware of how the building that you're putting on to the public realm is being perceived and I think that's kind of translating a lot of the discussions we have around the project that we do is always like uh, how do, like how do we want people to see the building that we've done and I think maybe very superficial but in so many ways sometimes we found that through ornamentations and colors it doesn't have to be like obviously expressed but it has to have some elements of things that can people people can relate to because I think we're attracted to graphics and we're attracted to shapes and things that well don't necessarily have a structural function that you can't <laughs> that's not something that's obviously read through building but yeah, I don't know, some small elements, sometimes it's a door handle that just is appearing very visibly on the facade. But that has like this kind of, yeah, thing that it feels designed. So it feels like someone has cared about that door handle, but not in a very mystical way, but just like, yeah, it's a yellow round mm -hmm. door handle. And then maybe a child is looking at it and be like, oh, that's fun. You know, <laughs> that's kind of, I think sometimes we're looking for the small things that we feel make it more relatable and less, let's, of what is portrayed as high architecture. Mm. But yeah, we had a discussion with uh, Atelier Particular, uh, with uh, Karsten and uh, Lena Magretta, and uh, they have a practice around like uh, particularities. And uh, I think we also found like a common ground while talking about it, uh, while discussing, because like, we did do a, a recent project where we discussed how we wanted to create like flexible generic spaces, uh, yet specific. And somehow, like it has to be, even though it is, it needs to be robust in the the functional aspect. Uh, it has to be somehow like identifiable, familiar, or relatable to the to the users. Uh, so there's something under that is like under that blanket that kind of like suggests that uh, yeah, we're not projecting just our own image uh, onto the project, uh, but like trying to reverse the gaze, uh, like yeah, of how we think we are perceived onto how we should perceive people. And we also talked about this earlier with you guys about um, doing something different just for the sake of doing something different, which sounds maybe super obnoxious, um, but which I think is really uh, important and um, relates also to the queer experience of being very self-aware. So when you do express yourself, you are very aware uh, of what you're doing. Um, and then just doing something uh, different in terms of architecture to just challenge the norm and to just... Because what we're doing right now isn't working. We have to kind of find some way to, to make it better. The problem with your suggestion, I think, is that uh, 
I understand it and then I sympathize with it. <laughs> but I can also see around me from what is built that that is exactly what it looks as though everybody's trying to do. <laughs> Uh, something just to do something different, and it is it is put into uh, yeah, the neo-capitalist uh, logic that we do it to increase uh, value and sale and and brand this building or brand this area, and that I think when one questions uh, topics related to queerness, it has a lot to do with politics. And from my point of view, it has to do also with a critique of capitalism and the way uh, capitalism is sort of the logic it, it puts into everything and we all submit to it in a way because we don't have any alternatives, it seems, that we don't have any alternatives, especially as um, have, when, we have, um, when we have a métier <laughs> that somebody pays for. <laughs> We're paid. Uh, artists have a more free position to address these things. For us, we have this client, and uh, should we use his or her money to sort of address things that they are absolutely not interested in? That is a problem uh, when it comes to how we can sort of have a queer practice. It's, it really is. Yeah, actually, I think that's been quite central <laughs> in our practice. We've been, we've been trying to set up our office for, let's say, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And the main question when you want to start your office is like, where are you going to get the money from? Mm -hmm. Really is, because there's <laughs> no other way to survive. Mm -hmm. And we've been really debating on how to set up a practice that we, yeah, that we can be proud of. Mm -hmm. and be kind of uh, enthusiastic about constantly if we do if we start on commissions not in a way that having a commission is bad right it's, it really depends on the client and everything but like kind of also being scared of yeah the normativity in the industry on how it works in some ways that at some point maybe we end up just doing housing residential buildings because we have to feed the office or something like that so we were like we've been really discussing on how to set up the practice and how to practice um, even work on competitions and everything and it's always been like oh, oh we have to produce renderings and then we're just tired of doing renderings so we decided to do models so, like we're trying to also put methods for ourselves sometimes that maybe unconsciously uh, subconsciously are not going to make us win and we do know that we're always hoping that we might win but we do know like a lot of what we're doing is obviously kind of a constraint towards like uh, working so like throughout we've just accepted that that's never going to be the case and then we've been very inspired actually by how an artist works mm -hmm. because you have to create your own belief in what you're doing because you have to it's not that you're going to sell it but you have to self-initiate the project that you believe in and then find a way to make that work for you also economically mm -hmm. so i think that's what we've decided that our model would be mm -hmm. and we've just quit our jobs and now that's <laughs> the only <laughs> but that's kind of the way that We've decided that trying to do our self-initiated projects also in a way and then find a way to... I, th I think that kind of like presents the perfect picture for uh, contradictions like within within the, the existing structure. So you were, we're all suggesting that a queer practice of architecture is the subversion of the existing 
um, yeah, hierarchy and, and power dynamics. Uh, so, but we do need to practice that uh, queerness uh, within the frame of this uh, of this industry that uh, that you know is governed by, as you said in a previous interview, uh, by these neoliberal and capitalistic um, rules. So, how do we play within it? Probably by living uh, differently, downscaling. Uh, how you live, how how many money you need to live. Also, it's probably uh, to be able to do to position yourself to take a position where you, where you are uh, as free as possible from these mechanisms. I think one really have to try to be as little uh, dependent on money as possible. <laughs> so, and what does that mean? It's maybe moving to. Uh, somewhere else where it's cheaper to live, but then you will, will miss, of course, the dynamic of the city and, and uh, people to be inspired from. And yeah, I don't know. But I think money is a very important uh, clue. Yes, unfortunately. And uh, we have uh, decided to work within this, uh, this horrible system uh, in a way. Uh, but I think there is also a great value in in that position um, to say that no, we're not going to save um, the world, um, but we can maybe in some way we can subvert this project just a little bit, and maybe then we just move a little bit forward. Um, and um, so that's kind of our uh, our take. Uh, and then we are we really admire all uh, uh, like your office and the artists who have the freedom to <laughs> to kind of go hardcore. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like we do need to acknowledge that we ourselves uh, are in a extremely privileged positions where somehow, thanks to our upbringing, our family, our own savings, we have been able to, to, to put ourselves in this situation. So let's not be unrealistic around here. Like, let's not pretend, right? <laughs> It's interesting when you say that uh, you are sort of uh, choosing parts of the building and alter it and, and then accept that the rest of it you have to just to accept the, the frames. Uh, but which, what, kind, what do you do? I think that first of all, we, we look at the project and then we always, always ask ourselves, is this speed? <laughs> and now I think we could ask the same question whether or not it's queer, um, but uh, but that's been something we've we've been doing since day one I think, uh, and we're getting uh, we still don't have an answer for <laughs> what is speed, but I mean you can kind of get a feel when it looks a little speedy. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, I th I think you can elaborate on this. No, but, no, but it's it's like you say that we have been working mostly based on. And intuition and uh, the reason why we started um, our practice was because we got the commission while studying so then we could kind of work from that um, and then when that commission was done it was like okay now what we have to get more commissions um, and then we have been working on intuition but also based on this uh, belief that we can actually what is be, what, what is the norm and what is being built isn't uh, great at the moment and that we, even though we are inexperienced, we can actually um, make do it better in many ways. Um, so then this kind of intuitive approach, especially to uh, aesthetics, these kind of changes that don't necessarily cost 
a lot of money, it just requires a different mindset, um, which we have now recently reflected on uh, the idea of queer space and uh, queer aesthetics. Mm. And uh, I mean, let me start again by saying that we're not here today to define what queer or queerness or queer architecture is. Uh, we're all exploring that notion, and I think it is the that process uh, is the most important uh, within this uh, very theme. And so we here at Safe Space see in a queer practice of architecture the potential to shift the gaze uh, of the majority, uh, to challenge norms and, and normativity as we spoke of right now, in order to find alternative ways to practice architecture and to question if, what and, and how we need to build to make meaningful and more inclusive architecture for all um, so our question, uh, final question for today would be, what do you see as potentials in this uh, and what hopes do you have for the future of our profession? I think it was so inspiring to hear Alma talk about uh, the students' um, experience uh, in your course. Um, because I think uh, that there is really like a hunger for this kind of knowledge and this approach uh, to architecture. Uh, and personally, I think I'm really optimistic uh, because you also mentioned that uh, creative practice is about questioning things. So I think in the architecture education, there is already something hardwired that we just have to hack. Uh, and then the thinking uh, is already or the, this kind of idea of questioning things. It's already there. It's already uh, in the very nature of uh, creative practice. Um, so I think awareness of these kinds of um, uh, problematics and questions um, can really um, bring about um, a change. Yeah, and I think, uh, for instance, today we talked a lot about uh, how things look, but I, also programming and the usage. Um, I got so inspired when uh, reading about uh, Leong Leong recently completed LGBT center in LA that is gonna include um, senior housing and um, it's just been something that I've uh, I just found it so interesting my because my boyfriend ha has been uh, working with the elderly as part of um, his studies uh, as a doctor and uh, pointing out how uh, how sad it is when um, the people in the senior homes they don't get visitors and it's usually their children and how we actually need to be aware of that when designing buildings and it's all senior housing are of course then designed for that uh, uh, that sense of having their children uh, visiting um, but what do you do when you have that um, the whole queer specter of it when, when you don't necessarily have the children uh, you have to think community you have to reprogram um, uh, they're also going to add a youth center to the senior housing i think it's super interesting to to think program programming i think for me uh, it's very important that we start to be more critical towards uh, the tasks we are uh, given and uh, for instance, like uh, Lakatoa Vassals, uh, of course, they are very famous, especially now when they got the Pritzker Prize, uh, who answered the, uh, when they were uh, asked to renew or 
redesign a square in Bordeaux, they actually said that you should just put on some more gravel and, and do something else with this money because it's not needed. And I think that is my hope for the future, <laughs> actually, that we do less. <laughs> and uh, probably that is also what is going to happen, hopefully, that we start to reuse in a broader and broader scale and instead of building new. So my hope is that we as architects stop to build so much buildings. And that's maybe the most queer thing to do. Yes, <laughs> I way. think so. I think so. Yeah, but because I, I think for me, I think uh, maybe it goes back to my experience at school and everything. I think I just wish there would be other ways of doing things. Like let's say, the, like Atomba said, is celebrated right now for this. But I think there are so many other ways of doing architecture which should really be praised and portrayed as references and as examples that really differ from the norm at large that really needs to be taught, put forward and just be presented as options to inspire next generations. And I think that's, for me, that's really what's missing is, mm. yeah, maybe I'm too obsessed with now this question of diversity and representation, but I miss, I can see the lack of representation in general in society at large and the way that everything is kind of heteronormative in so many ways. So it's just, yeah, I just miss more celebrations of individualities and identities. And yeah, maybe it's through not building, but that mm. should be presented as a studio <laughs> yeah. almost. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, recently I, I started reading this book called uh, A View from the Bottom by uh, uh, a scholar, I believe, Nguyen Tân Hoàng, who's a, a Vietnamese American. And uh, he, he talked about bottomhood as so, originated from the sexual position of uh, uh, within a, a homosexual um, sort of like a relationship but, but he kind of like used that to uh, exemplify the receptivity whether you know it be social political or effective or aesthetic uh, uh, in queerness that resides in queerness so that you're 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 more able yeah to receive to perceive to to uh, maybe yeah think twice or thrice or four times before doing something uh, so yeah that questioning of whether we should build uh, uh, lies in the very center of it thanks uh, very much for participating in uh, the discussion today and uh, we can be more excited to further expand uh, this conversation with you yeah. in the future looking forward to this conversation being uh, held in the society, actually. Mm. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, thank you for uh, organizing uh, this residency and this uh, podcast series. I think it's uh, so important right now to get these questions out there to, to discuss these difficult topics. Yeah, thank you for raising awareness. Also you, Alma, for doing it through your school. And then we will try our best <laughs> to practice, <laughs> do it through our practice. Um, yeah, but we will definitely talk more about it. Mm, yeah, I would like to thank you too for having doing this uh, project, Safe Space project. I think it's very interesting and I think it will be a reference uh, exhibition, this one. Thank you. Voilà. <laughs> 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 <laughs>